Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And uh, if you're new to church or kind of new to the Bible, uh, 2 Thessalonians is uh, near the end of the Bible, it's near the back. So, and it follows 1 Thessalonians, so uh, right there. So uh, there's no shame in using the table of contents. So um, yeah, turn to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. Now let me tell you about our series, as you're turning there, let me tell you about the series that we're going to begin uh, next, next Sunday, and uh, that series that w- is a series that we're calling Praying with Paul, Cultivating a Life of Prayer, and we're going to be looking at the prayers of the Apostle Paul that are sprinkled throughout the New Testament, and the reason why we're doing this is because, you know, if I were to really go and ask you about your prayer life, I would, I would say that most of us would confess that we really struggle in our prayer life, that we really struggle being consistent in our prayer and being diligent and disciplined in our prayer life. And, and, uh, you know, most of us would confess that when we pray, we just feel like our our prayers just kind of bounce off the ceiling. When we pray, our mind kind of wanders a little bit. When we pray, we just feel like we repeat the same phrases over and over and over again. And so it just seems like Prayer is not making a difference. It seems like we're not really breaking through when we pray. And, and so I think a lot of us would, would admit to that. And the reason why we would admit to that is because the truth is prayer is really hard. And so, so my message to you this morning is it's not just you. See, prayer is really challenging. Prayer is, is really difficult. In fact, I would say this, you know, if... Um, you know, for most of us, prayer is so hard that unless circumstances demand it, we, we probably wouldn't pray at all because that's just how challenging prayer can be. Now, the problem with it is, is, is you know, oftentimes what happens is our life kind of drifts into prayerlessness. And that's where we really begin to have problems because we don't realize the connection between prayerlessness and anxiety, but it's there. It really is. So we live in an age of anxiety. We, we live in, an, in a time when a lot of us really struggle with anxiety, myself included. But there's a definite connection between prayerlessness and anxiety. There's also a definite connection between prayerlessness and just, you know, the world looking attractive to us. And so, so part of the problem is when, we, when we're not really persevering in prayer it leads to this prayerlessness and the world just looks more and more attractive and so we're more prone to chase what the world tells us we need we need to be chasing and then then not only that prayerlessness leads to spiritual dryness in our life so we really don't desire the things of God we don't desire the word of God we don't desire to be with the people of God because because you know we're we're, we are prayerless now here's the question I want to kind of throw out to you this morning And it's this, what would happen if your life was a praying life? Like what would happen if your life was saturated with prayer? I think it would be life-changing. I think it would absolutely change your life. I think you would experience joy and peace and power. You would experience the movement of God in your life. You would experience the miracles of God in your life because your eyes would be open to them. 
And then more than anything, you would experience the presence of God in your life in a way that you haven't in, you know, ever before. And so, and so that's what this series really is all about. We, wanna, we really want to inspire you to pray and equip you to pray. And we want to do that by looking at how the Apostle Paul prayed because we've got a number of his prayers recorded in, in the New Testament. And so what we're going to find is we're going to find our knowledge about how to pray increasing and hopefully really by the grace of God uh, we will we will take steps in this area so praying with Paul begins next Sunday don't miss it everybody get it very good all right now as you know tomorrow is is Labor Day and um, I don't know if you knew this or not but Labor Day started in 1882 and it started in New York City. The Central Labor Union in New York City, which was really a communist organization, uh, they, they started Labor Day. And they did it to recognize the American worker and the achievements of the American worker. And so they wanted to kind of celebrate that. And so really by 1894, 23 states had taken on Labor Day as a national holiday. And then later on that year in 1894, President Grover Cleveland signed it into law that Labor Day would be a national holiday. And all of God's people said, amen. So yeah, so that's a little bit of background on Labor Day. So all of that to say, Happy Labor Day. I hope you enjoy your day tomorrow. So now here's what's interesting is I was kind of thinking about it this week. You know, the purpose of Labor Day is really to celebrate the American worker, to celebrate the fact that we have jobs, that, that you know, that um, work is uh, meaningful, that, that work is uh, a blessing from God. And so, but here's the irony of it. We're living in a time where more and more American workers are choosing not to work. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we're living, I mean, this is kind of an unprecedented moment in our nation's history where a significant number of people are really choosing not to work. And it's certainly pandemic related. I think the pandemic started it. It has impacted every area of our life, but especially, but especially the job market. So I did a little bit of digging and I found that according to the Bureau of Labor, so this is the federal government, they say that currently right now there are 10.1 million open jobs right now. 10.1 million open jobs in the United States. And then currently, there are 8.7 million unemployed people today. Now, what that translates into is this, that businesses simply cannot find um, workers, enough workers to hire. And we learned this the hard way. Tuesday night, we were celebrating uh, my wife's birthday at the Cheesecake Factory. And so we went and sat down, and our server came to the table and said, hey, welcome to the Cheesecake Factory. It's a great place to eat, by the way. And so the server said, uh, you know, I just need to be honest with you. Two-thirds of our menu is not available tonight. Two-thirds of it. And now, thankfully, they have a big menu, but two-thirds are not available. So we asked them why, and they said, we don't have enough cooks. We can't hire cooks. There's nobody in the kitchen to cook. And so uh, they said, you know, basically, we've got a little, we've got a few things on the menu that we can serve you, but just know going in. And, um, and so that's just kind of interesting, something I'd never experienced before. But I, I know that you've probably experienced it recently as well. And so one of the biggest reasons, there, there's several reasons why that this is happening. I think a lot of American workers have retired because of the pandemic. But probably the biggest reason is government assistance to the unemployed is so, is so good that many people are choosing to stay 
at home and just basically live off government support. And so basically the government is paying workers not to work. And so why, you know, why not just stay home and lay in bed if you, you know, can collect checks? So, so really that's the way a lot of people are viewing it now. So hopefully, hopefully that will begin to change. But, but here's the question that I want to throw out to us this morning, and it's this. Why do we work? We're going to spend a significant piece of our lives, a significant investment of our entire life working. So why do we work? Why, why do you work? Why are you going to you know, get up this week and, and, and start you know, logging in those hours? And some of you would say, well, I, I work to provide for my family. Some of you would say, you know, I've got bills I've got to get paid off. You know, I owe, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. You know, that kind of a thing. Um, other people will say, well, I'm working with a goal. I'm working to get rich so that I can just live comfortable the rest of my life. Or some of us say, well, you know, I'm working so that I can get to retirement a lot, um, a lot quicker. So, so really, is that the purpose of work? Is that why we work, those reasons? You know, do we work just simply we can retire one day? What, is, what does the Bible say about work? You know, what does the Bible say about our relationship with God and the work that we have? It has um, interestingly enough, a lot to say. So what I want to do today is I want us to look at a passage of scripture right from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that I think helps us to begin to understand a biblical perspective towards work. So we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians 3, and, and uh, just a minute I'm going to have you stand as we read that, but let me give you a little bit of context to this. So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, the second letter to the Thessalonians. You remember earlier this year we did an entire series on his first letter. And so the first and second letters to the Thessalonians really have this key theme of the second coming of Christ, where he's, he's pointing these Christians to Jesus' imminent return. And so part of what he is dealing with, the Apostle Paul, in this, in this church, among this group of Christians, is there are a number of Christians who are choosing to be lazy. They're choosing to be idle. They're choosing to sit on their couch and eat bonbons all day and just kind of, you know, uh, hang out. And so what the Apostle Paul is going to basically say in both letters is that, is that our laziness, our idleness, dishonors God and is detrimental to us and to the people that love us the most. So, so that's kind of what he is talking about in 2 Thessalonians. And so let me just show it to you firsthand. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word together today? So the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we didn't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, then take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So this is kind of an interesting passage of scripture. Um, Very personal, very practical, uh, very straight to the point. And I think what we see in this passage really are three reasons, three reasons why we should work. And so what I want to do today is share with you a fourth reason that he gives in 1 Thessalonians, all right? So there's three in this passage, and then there is a fourth reason in his first letter to the Thessalonians, which we'll, we'll look at in just a minute. So let's look at this. The first reason why we work is we work because God commanded it. We work because God commanded it. Let me show you this again in verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, now such persons we command, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so really in the spirit of who Jesus Christ is, in the person and the work of who Jesus Christ is, by the authority that Christ has invested in us, he says, we command you to do what? Uh, to do your work quietly and to earn your own living. So his direction is really clear. You are, you are to work. And so, and so he just kind of lays it out there very practically. Now what was going on very specifically in this church is that a lot of the Christians in Thessalonica were thinking, okay, well, um, you know, since Jesus' return is soon, since he's going to be returning very soon, we can just wait for him. We'll just hang out and wait, right? He's going to come back, so we don't need to get ourselves all sweaty and dirty in the meantime, right? Let's just hang out and wait for Jesus' return. And so they were using the return of Jesus as a rationalization for their laziness. And Paul basically says, not so fast, not so fast. Now, could you imagine the division that this would kind of create within a body of Christ? Because you've got a, a certain section of people that are basically going to say, hey, I'm not going to do any work. And, uh, you know, and then, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, you know, we're going to go to the elders and we're going to go to, you know, you know, to the church and ask them for some financial support while we wait for Jesus' return. And so the other half of the church is really working really hard. You know, they're, they're they're logging in their 40 to 50 hours so that they can give to the ministry of the church. And then, and then the church has to take care of those that are in need. And so you could see the kind of broken community that would result in here. See, this is not an issue of generosity. It's really an issue of laziness. And so what the Apostle Paul really wants to convey here is that work is God's will for you and for me. Work is God's will for you and for me. It's his, his plan really from the beginning of creation that we work. Now, if you want to, I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter one, the very first uh, chapter in the entire Bible, because I want to show you God's command on us to work right from scripture. So again, don't take my word for it, take the word of God's word for it. And I want to show you this right from Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 28. And so the writer of Genesis says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
Now that's really important. That's a real important statement because what you see here is that human beings are created in the image of God. And and it even repeats it after our likeness. The likeness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So all human beings have a special status before God. And that status is an image bearer of the living God. That's what you see. This is, church, this is why every human being is of utmost value and importance in the eyes of God. Because they bear the very image, the very reflection of God. It doesn't matter their skin color. It doesn't matter their education level. It doesn't matter their age. It doesn't matter even their life quality. None of that matters. Human beings are made in the image of God, and that's why we love all human beings. Now, uh, that's, that's really what is laid out here in Genesis chapter 1. Now, theologians kind of debate, well, now what does it really mean to be made in the image of God? And so there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff written on this, but let me just kind of boil it down for you in, in this kind of the simplest of terms. So really being made in the image of God means that we have a special status that, that separates us from the animals and trees and plants and that kind of thing. So we're on a different level than the rest of creation. And the reason why we're on this different level is because we are to bear the, the, the real image of God's character. In other words, we are, to, we are to demonstrate the character of God by how we live our life. That's what it means to be an image bearer. So that when people see us, they see the image of God. They see the character of God. Does that make sense? And then not only that, but being an image bearer of God also means that we that we rule creation. So God has created the earth and he, he wants work to be done, which I'll show you in just a minute what that work is. And we're the ones that he wants to do it. So God chooses to do his work through people, through you and me. And so we'll, we'll show it, we'll, let me just, we'll just show it, we'll just look at it right now. Let's just jump in. And he says this, and so let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And that word dominion is rule, okay? Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so, and so that's what, you, that's, that's really what he's talking about, that part of our job is to rule over the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them. And notice this, church, look at this. Male and female, he created them. Now, you, understand, you catch what he's saying there? What, what, is, what, what we're learning there is that men and women are image bearers of God. And even broader than that, gender is a creation of God. So what we hear, what we're bombarded with in our present culture today, the sexual revolution today drives the the, the mantra that gender is culturally created. And that's false. Culture recognizes gender. God created gender. You see it right here in the creation narrative. So really... And I'm getting off on a little tangent, but, but I think you're with me on this, all right? 
transgenderism is a rebellion against the creative order and the creation and the creator himself because it's right here in who he is. So it's important that we understand where that's grounded from. It's grounded right in Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. Now, all of that was free this morning. See, there you go. He didn't even ask for that. So, but, you know, you can't just go by there and not even acknowledge that. So, all right, so let me show you the work of God. Look at the next verse, verse 28. So the writer of Genesis says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about parenting and grandparenting right there. That is the hardest work you and I will ever do. I'm just telling you right there. Can I get an amen to that? Certainly, yeah. So parenting is, is really, really hard work. But notice how he expands on it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Take the earth under your authority, in other words, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves the earth. And so he's, he's basically saying that I want you to rule the earth. I want you to oversee it. And then later on, we see in Genesis 2 where, where God tells them, I want you to tend the garden. I want you to cultivate the garden. I want you to work the garden. Now, this church is a big task. This is absolutely huge. Fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule it. And so what God really wants is he wants the earth to be cultivated and ordered, that's what he wants. And he has delegated that to you and to me. So all of our jobs are a part of that ordering. Everything that we're paid to do is a part of that ordering and cultivating. And so, and so really, if you wanted to know, contrary to popular opinion, you know what the oldest profession is? It's farming and landscaping. That's what it is, because that's what he, he is telling us to do in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So we are to be his representatives, his image bearers, and we are to do the work that he has called us to do. So all of this means, church, you and I were created to work. Work is dignifying. Work is holy. Work is good. And you see it right in creation. Now some of you push back and say, well, you know, what is you know, I thought, I thought work was a result of the curse, of the fall into sin. Well, I want you to notice that the, the fall into sin, the curse, has not occurred yet. You won't get that until Genesis 3. So our work is really holy unto God. It is God's will, and it was God's idea long before the fall came along. Now, what we see from Scripture is that work is involved in the curse, just like every other area of our life is involved in the curse. And the involvement of, you know, curse of our work and how it's cursed is this. Work is difficult as a result of sin. That's where you see the intersection of the curse and our work. You know, God said to Adam and Eve, your work's going to be difficult. Your work is going to be hard. Your work is going to be painful. And so it is still a blessing. It is still God's idea. But work, because of the fall of sin, is a lot more difficult. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting when you, when you think about this. What we see from Scripture is that God is always at work himself. So it's not just, you know, God sitting back and, 
sipping on lemonade in heaven and watching, you know, all of us, you know, work, you know, work and sweat and all of that. But what we have from scripture is a clear picture that God is always at work himself. Let me, let me just show you this from John 5, 17, where, where Jesus really responds to them. He says this, my father is working until now and I am working. Now that's interesting, isn't it? So what you have is, you know, we worship a God who is always at work. He is always working. You say, well, what kind of work, you know, does, does God do? He's, you know, he's advancing the gospel. He is convicting the sinner. He is healing the sick. He's healing the broken. He is, you know, pursuing the lost. He is confirming his call. He's imparting faith. He's granting repentance. He's softening someone's heart. He's revealing his glory. He's doing those things all the time. I love what Pastor John Piper says about this. He says this, he says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Because he is always at work, church. He's at, he's, at, he's at work in Afghanistan right now. Like he's, he's at work in China. He, he's at work in what we would think are the most kind of godless places. He's at work all over the world. And so, and so the reason why we work is because God has commanded us and called us to work. But there's a second reason why we work, and that is we work to provide for our needs. So this is a little bit closer to where, where most of us are. This is kind of a little bit uh, more in proximity to why we're actually getting up and going to work. We want to provide for our, our, our needs and the needs of our family. And so we, we don't want to be a burden to others. But let me show you this back in 2 Thessalonians 3. Let me show you verses 7 and 8. He says this, he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we, lurked, we, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, what Paul is saying here is this. No one can accuse us of mooching off of you guys. You know, we're not freeloaders. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't take advantage of you in any way. He said, he, he just lays it out. You know full well that we worked to support ourselves while we worked among you. And part of what is happening with that is he never wanted to be accused of doing ministry and spreading the gospel for financial gain. So he said, I'm not even going to touch that. I'm not even going to mess with that. And, and he basically says this, he says, I'm, I'm just here to bring the gospel and I'm, I'm going to make tents on the side because that's what the apostle Paul did. He was a tent maker. That's how he supported himself. And so he spent a lot of time with these Christians, discipling them, helping them get this church planted. And so he did it in a way that was not in any way a burden to them. And so he wanted, uh, he didn't want anything to, you know, be called into question about why he was doing what he was doing. Now, Let's just, let's just hit on the principle. What he's talking about is this. He worked to provide for his own needs. And that's a great reason to work. That's a godly reason to work, in other words. And so, I don't know if you know the name Captain John Smith. He was uh, the captain of the Mayflower. He had a rule on the Mayflower ship. You know what that rule was? I'm sure he had several, but this is the main rule that he had. Uh, the main rule that he had is if you don't share in the work, you don't share in the meals. 
that was the rule that he had on the Mayflower as they were coming over, you know, to, to the new land. So now, where did he get that? Well, he got it right from this passage. He got it from verse 10. Let me show it to you. Paul says this in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. We, we wanted you to live by this principle. And the principle is this, if anyone is not willing to work, then let him not eat. And so basically what he's saying is, he's saying there's no, there, there's no, there are no loaves for loafers. That's what he's saying. We're not handing out, you know, a bread loaf here if you're going to loaf on us. It's just not, not going to happen. If you don't work, you don't eat. It's a principle. It's a command. And uh, it's a part of what he, is, he has taught these Christians in Thessalonica. Now, church, listen to me. He's not saying, don't hear what he's not saying. He's not saying if a man can't work, he can't eat. He's not saying that. The issue here is laziness. That's the issue. The issue here is idleness. Um, and that's what he's trying to address pastorally with, with these folks. He's trying to help them to see, look, if you're going to eat, you've you got you to help pull the weight around here because there's plenty, plenty to do. And so there are legitimate people. There are people who legitimately cannot work that need our financial support. That is absolutely legitimate. And so their work is going to be, you know, limited. They, they can't provide for themselves. And so I really believe, church, listen to this, okay? You want to get real political about it? Let me just jump into this. I think it's the function of the church and not the government to support the homeless and the needy and the poor. That's what I think because I think the church would do a much, much better job. I think it's our job as the body of Christ to take care of those in need in place of, instead of the government. In fact, I was reading about a church in Buffalo, New York. It was, the name of the church is True Bethel Baptist Church. And uh, this church is in a rough section of Buffalo, New York, and they raised money, get this, they raised money to buy a Subway franchise. The church did. They bought a Subway franchise, and they did it because they live, they live in a very crime-ridden community, very, uh, you know, very poor community where there's just a lot of crime and, and uh, a lot of drug abuse. And so there, there are people in their community that needed jobs. So they bought a subway and uh, they staffed it and they, they used the subway restaurant as a way of helping people be trained in unemployment. And then they would train their people and then push them on to better jobs. And, uh, and so it was a huge, just a huge success. They just saw a huge blessing from this, um, you know, from the people in their community. And then I think that's a great example of the church really taking care of the poor and the needy in their community. And so, and so really this principle of we work to provide for our needs is a godly, godly, God-given principle that God gives to us. So, so in fact... The Bible speaks of this in 1 Timothy 5.8. Notice, notice what, what, God, what God says through the Apostle Paul. He says, but if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
So the principle that we can really pull out of that is this, that a part of, part of our work is to provide for our families, and that is, that is a God-glorifying, God-honoring command. And this is a pretty harsh statement because anyone who refuses to work and refuses to provide for their family, basically, he's saying, is, is worse than an unbeliever. And so that's a second reason why we work. We work because God commanded it, and we work because it provides for our needs. But let me give you a third reason why we work, and it's this. We work to grow in Christ-likeness. We work to grow in Christ-likeness. Look again at verses 7, 8, and 9. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. So he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And, and, so, and so it was not because we didn't have that right. We had that right. We could have lived off you. But he says, but really we wanted to give you an example to imitate. So he uses this word imitate two times in that passage. And the principle I think he's talking about here is he wants them to follow his example. He wants them to imitate his character and the character of his team as they worked and as they were diligent, as they, as they were faithful day in and day out in their work. In other words, he really challenged them, imitate the character that you see in me and let that be a part of who you are. In fact, in Corinthians, the apostle Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. You see that? You see that in, in, in the Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Now, when you think about it, you think about the fact that, you know, most of us are going to work probably 40 to 50 hours uh, this week. And, you know, you're, you know, Lord willing, you're going to work 40 years of your life, right? Uh, that's a long time. Um, some of you are in school, okay? Some of you are in high school, you're in middle school, in elementary school. Let me just say to the students, this is your job for now. This is your job. This is your work that God has, has called you to do. And so you want to you honor God in that work. And all the parents said, uh, amen, right? And so, so absolutely. So, so my point is this. You're going to spend a third, a third of your life working. That's a significant chunk. What does God want to do in you through your work? What does he want to do? He wants to grow your character. He wants to grow you in Christ-likeness. In fact, I would say it like this. God is more interested in your character than he is your career. He wants to grow your character. So any of you have a boss that drives you nuts? Think about this. God can use a boss that drives you nuts to grow you like Jesus. Any of you have a job that you're not happy in right now? The good news is this, that God can use a job that you're not happy in to cultivate the character of his son in you and in me. Isn't that amazing? And that's a part of what, of what God wants to do. I say it all the time, life is prep school for eternity. And so you're in the classroom of character right now because God is getting you ready for heaven. God is preparing you for heaven. Your job is a big part of God's preparation to get you ready for the incredible eternity that, that we're going to share through Jesus. And so, so practically what this means is this. God has planted seeds of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness in all of us. 
He's planted those seeds in us. And in order to grow those seeds, what do you have to have? You got to have a whole lot of manure, right? You guys making the connection where I'm going with this? Yeah, you're like, yeah, my job is like manure. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what is going on there. God is growing you. See, he's put you in a situation where he's trying to grow you and change you. And see, a lot of us think, oh, I only grow when I read the Bible and when I pray. That's not true. God's growing you and changing you all the time because you are his son, you are his daughter. And so really, he is, he is changing you and using the difficult job that you have. That doesn't mean you have to spend forever doing it. I mean, you can change jobs and just submit that to God and pray about that and, you know, pursue wisdom and all of that. But, but just understand what he's trying to do in us. See, it always goes back to becoming like Christ. In fact, Jesus says this in Luke 16, 10. He says this, one who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So your faithfulness where you are today is going to lead to blessing in the future, even in your eternal future. That through our work, God tests us. And he wants us to see if we're going to be faithful. He gives us little things. And so, and so really, God's not interested in pampering you. What he really is interested in is perfecting you. And so there's certain things that you learn through work that you just can't learn anywhere else, like dependability or self-control or persistence or confidence or honesty, any number of things. And so just understand that what God is doing is he's cultivating the character of his son in you. Here's the last one. Here's the third or the fourth reason why we work. We work to be a witness. We work to be a witness. Now, if you turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, so you can just turn over just a little bit, this fourth reason is not in our passage. It's in, it's in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. So I just want to show you this because this is so significant. I couldn't, I couldn't not uh, bring it up because it's really core to the gospel. And so notice what he says. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10, he says, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs. Because I think they had a lot of, they had a lot of gossip stuff going on. They had, you know, just people getting, getting into drama that's just manufactured, you know what I mean? Kind of like, like life now. But, um, and so and he's saying, look, just aspire to live quietly, Mind your own affairs, and notice what he says, to work with your hands. Literally, in the Greek, that means eat your own bread. That's what it means. Literally, means eat your own bread. As we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this is the fourth reason he gives, and it's this. We work, church, to be a witness to others. He says, I want you to live a quiet life. I want you to mind your own business. And I want you to earn and eat your own bread. Why? So that you would walk properly before outsiders. So what he wants is he's really interested in us living a certain way in front of outsiders, people outside the church, people outside the faith, people that don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He wants us to live a certain way, and that, and that way is to be quiet, to mind our own business, and to, 
do a great job in our work. That's, that's the way. In other words, my work is a testimony. My work is a witness. My work is an example to unbelievers. We are called to be audiovisual Christians. So we are called to share the gospel with, with words so that they hear, but we're also called to share the gospel with our life so that they see. And those two combinations, that combination together is a powerful witness to an unbelieving world. And so it could be that you're in a workplace where you're not allowed to share your faith openly. We're seeing a lot more corporations drift, you know, in that direction. But, it, but you can be a witness in how you work and how you conduct your work. And so as people see you, do your work, they see that you're dependable, that you're trustworthy, that you do excellent work, that you're a person of integrity. And they're like, man, we don't know anybody else that, you know, is a person of integrity like you. So tell me why you're so committed to that. And then you tell them. It's because of Jesus. And so really, our work is to be a witness. It's like what Jesus says, let your light shine in the darkness so that, so that they will see the good things that you do and what? Praise your Father in heaven. So your work is to be a witness. And so you could be in the, you could be in the darkest place. You could be in a, in, a, in a work group that's surrounded by atheists. You could be in the kind of darkest place, whatever darkness looks like. But church, that's where the light shines the brightest. And, uh, and so when you see it as, as a witness, when you see it as a testimony, it really becomes a powerful way that God evangelizes people around you through through your words, and especially through your excellent work. You know, Christians really should be, we should do the most excellent work on the earth because we have every motivation to do excellent work, whatever it is. See, I think our tendency today is this, to kind of compartmentalize our life. You know, to kind of chop our life up into compartments or, you know, little boxes. And so I've got my marriage box and I've got my family box and I've got my you know my hobby box and I've got my oh yeah I got my church box and then you know I've got my job box and we just kind of segregate our life and and really it reveals a broader segregation basically between the secular and sacred and we think there's certain things in our life that are holy like so when I go to church or I serve in ministry of the church that's holy but when I go to work you know that's in the secular world that's not so holy and I just want to push back on that. There's no secular, sacred divide. You know why? Because it all belongs to God. It's all sacred. My job as a pastor, church, listen to this. My job as a pastor, I'm in full-time ministry. My job is no more sacred than yours. Did you know that? You're a stay-at-home mom. You're a school teacher. You're a lawyer. You're a firefighter, right? You're, you're, you're a small business owner. Your jobs are just as holy as mine. You know why? Because God owns it all. It all belongs to him. And, it, and, it, and your job blesses people in a certain way and makes life happen for a whole lot of people and has a huge impact. Your job is holy. And so when we begin to see the holiness of work, then we begin to cooperate and be a witness in the midst of that in the midst of that work. 
And so your job is absolutely sacred. I love how the Apostle Paul really hints at this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says this, so whether you eat or drink, so there's, you know, eating or drinking, or whatever you do, that, that just about covers it all right there. Do it for what? Do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. I think that's, that's pretty amazing when you think about the implications of what that means. You have the most significant job on the earth because God knows the work that you're doing. So it could be anything. And it's significant because it is significant in the eyes of God because you have a chance to glorify God in the midst of it. I, I love the story of Joseph. You guys have heard me talk about him all the time. I love the story of Joseph. I, I don't know if we realize the job that he had, you know, he was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt, and then he was accused of a crime he didn't commit, and then, you know, thrown into prison, and then just through God's sovereign hand, God raised him up to be the prime minister of Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world. He's second in command there, and he loves God. He knows and worships the true and living God, and he's surrounded by Egyptians who are far from God. And what does Joseph do? He does the best job that he could do. He literally, you read the story, he saves the lives of thousands and thousands of people because he was so good at what he did. And he didn't compromise, you know, with the people around him who were worshiping all these other gods. He never compromised. He just lived a life true to the true and living God. And that's what God has called you and I to do. Daniel is the same way, the prophet Daniel. Most of us don't realize that he was an administrator in government service to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and probably Cyrus, king of Persia. He worked in the government for those guys. You couldn't get more pagan than that. And yet he knew the true God and he refused to compromise. And so these guys did their job for the glory of God and they did it really well and they did it in some sometimes very difficult circumstances just like you and I are called to do. Now, let me get real practical. Let me close with this. How do you glorify God in your work? Let me just, let me just lay out maybe four or five ways. You know, when you're thinking about glorifying God in your work tomorrow or whenever you go back, I think one way that you can glorify God is just through dependence. Through dependence. I think you get up every morning and you confess your utter dependence upon God to do your job. And you say, God, I just really need your help to teach these kids, to watch these kids, to, you know, fix these widgets or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. God, I need your help to do this. God, would you, would you bless me? I think another way that you can glorify God in your work is just doing work with integrity. Just being a person of integrity, just sticking by your word, being truthful, being honest, that's gonna shine in a dark world, I promise you. I think a third way that you, can, that you can glorify God in your work is just loving other people. Because the thing that's gonna outlast the work are the people. And so while businesses are focused on the bottom line of making money, God's bottom line is, are people. And you loving people, you caring for other people, you taking an interest in other people, you letting other people know you're praying for them. That's a great thing to do with your work. 
I think another way that you can glorify God in your work is just communication. So when you think about it, we all have networks of relationships, right? We have networks of, of people that we work with in our work group. And so it's going to come up over time. Why do you do what you do? And this is an opportunity for you to say, because I'm a Christian, because I love Jesus. And so you can share your, your faith in everyday conversations and do it winsomely, right? Do it naturally. Do it joyfully. The pressure is not on you. You just, you just share out who you really are. And then lastly, a way that you can glorify God with your job is just be a giver, to be a giver. See, a big part of why we work is so that we can earn money to give to the work of God throughout the world. So you earn money so that you can be generous and share with those in need. You can build, build a kingdom of God. If you're living above your means, then it's going to be really hard for you to be generous. It's going to be really hard for you to give because you're spending it all on yourself. So we work to be able to give because Jesus is our ultimate treasure. And so those are some very practical ways that you can, that you can be a witness at work. Now, let me finish with this. Why would, why would you be a witness? Well, the answer is this, the gospel. I mean, think about what Jesus did. He left his throne, right? And what did he do? He gave himself to the work of redemption. And he took on human flesh. And get this, he went to school faithfully. And he learned the Old Testament, every letter of it. The Son of God learned the Old Testament, even though he wrote it. Now get that, that's kind of interesting. And then not only that, we, we think he was a carpenter, pretty sure about that, so he learned a trade. And, uh, and not only that, but he gave himself to the ministry, to healing, teaching, and preaching, and discipling the disciples, and then going to the cross, doing the work of being our substitute. And on the third day, being raised from the dead so that we could have new life. That's why we do what we do. That's why we work hard. That's why you have a purpose. When you get up early and you start your work this week, you know that God is being glorified in you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for... Um, the dignity that you bestow upon us in work. And I just pray that you would, for those of us who are in a very difficult job and a very difficult boss and a very demanding, stressful situation, whatever it is, God, we just ask for your grace. We need your grace. We are totally dependent upon you. And we thank you for allowing the difficulties because they bring us, they bring us back to you. They remind us how much we need you. So I pray for all of us, men and women and students in this room, that we would, this week, we would just do good work for you. God, we would witness to your glory, to your love, to your goodness. And so God, we just renew ourselves to you. We renew our commitment to you. Everything that we are, everything that we want to be, Lord, everything that we're not, we give to you. We belong to you. You died for us. We live and work for you. And all of God's people said,